reason why I created Like Minds is that I didn't see enough people with my background, perspective on the world in the jobs I was in. Most of the time, I was the only Black executive, the only uh, LGBTQI um, professional, um, nearly always had a different view on things, um, which in the beginning of your career was uh, complicated because you're asking yourself, okay, there, there I go again, Edson has a different view. But I started realizing more in the mid and the end of my career that, um, that actually that was my strength, that was my superpower. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Today's guest is Edson Hatto. Edson is an award-winning executive who transforms multi-billion global companies, startups and scale-ups through a process called rehumanisation. He has 20 years experience of helping businesses transform their culture to promote talent, leadership and organisational development, performance, diversity and inclusion. And he started his career at PricewaterhouseCooper, but has since worked as Senior Vice President of Human Resources at AstraZeneca, UBS, Philip Morris and InGroup. He founded Like Minds, a board and people advisory company to share his vision and help companies implement change. Among his many achievements, which you can see in the show notes, Edson is chairman of the advisory board for Corporate Queer, a network organisation for LGBT plus professionals to challenge the heteronormative culture of the corporate world. An advocate of lifelong learning, Edson is currently studying for a PhD focused on the subject of critical leader behaviours that are necessary for transformation. Really delighted to have you on today, Edson. Welcome. Thank you, Naomi. Hi, Edson. Very pleased to meet you. And thanks a lot for coming along today. Um, so can you begin by telling us something about your career pathway, how that led to you starting Like Minds? Yeah, D- David, that's a, that's a really good question. I I come from a from a family where my parents have always ingrained this thing in our heads that you need to take care of yourself, right? And coming from a small community in the Caribbean, the only way that a, um, I would call it a, a, a poor to middle class family can progress is through education. And thank God we, we had that. So I, I worked hard at getting my degrees in marketing, economics, an MBA in international business in New York, got several grants and scholarships and started working at um, actually at a, as, as a temp, at a temp agency, doing administrative work uh, because I couldn't find a job. Um, it took me a year to find a job after doing several applications. Um, and one way or the other, I was not being asked for the interview process. So I started working as a temp agent. From there, someone gave me a chance to work in the financial department. And from there onwards to consultancy, and I got into strategic business development. So I helped companies with their strategies and aligning their product market services. And during one of these projects, I had to look at the human side of an integration that we were doing of a couple of big business units. And and I did that piece of work and and the head of HR of that business asked me to come and work for her. Um, And that's how I got into HR. I was really reluctant, didn't want to do it, um, and this was, I think, 25 odd years ago, and I never left. Um, so that's how I got into HR. And the reason why I created Like Minds is that I saw, I didn't see enough people with my background, perspective on the world in the jobs I was in. Most of the time, I was the only Black executive, the only uh, LGBTQI um, professional um, nearly always had a different view on things, um, which in the beginning of your career was uh, complicated because you're asking yourself, okay, there, there I go again. Edson has a different view. But I started realizing more in the mid and the end of my career that um, that actually that was my strength, that was my superpower. So why I created Like Minds is to bring in a different perspective of doing business. 
into our organization, a different perspective of leadership into our organizations. That's the reason why I why I set it up. Thanks very much. And I think you've already described to us there how your 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 parental influence, their guidance towards education, but I think also something about uh, their their uh, influence on encouraging you to be determined and persistent had quite a lot to do with your uh, pathway perhaps how is your own so who uses your service and what are the circumstances in which you'll be approached ah so 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 that's that's also a very good question david i started this company in 2016 and up till now all my clients have been referrals these are people that have coached in the past that now are in uh, executive roles or our CEOs themselves. And they call me and they say, Edson, we have tried all the standard processes. We have tried all the standard advisory firms and it's not working for, for us. Come and help us, right? So most of the time, that's how they start. And the second part is, um, I then get go into a bit of a due diligence with them because I also very upfront around if we start this process, it starts with you as a leader and it starts with you as a leader and your team. It doesn't start with the rest of the organization because the power resides with you. And if you don't behave differently, nothing is going to change. So do you really want this? Because it's going to be a deep dive into your personality and what you stand for. So, um, so most of the times these companies are companies that have said, hey, we have tried everything, it's not working, and they're ready to do something different. And mostly out of my network, um, being approached uh, to, to, to do to buy by clients. Yeah. Can I just ask, is it mainly companies that have, have got significant problems that they're kind of like feeling quite desperate that they know they have to do something drastic or does it tend to be more progressive companies that want to stay on top of things and find it easier to spot problems emerging and addressing them before they become big big issues it's a it's it's a little bit of both Naomi um it's most of the time it is I see the following happening I'm seeing executives that are from a different generation getting into the boardroom and saying, but I don't want this this way. So I see that happening. However, they are managing multi-million pounds and and euros companies that are very set in the ways of of how things were being done. I also see companies that are very progressive and are saying, hey, we want to stay ahead of the curve. We want to be able to... Um, have elasticity in order to deal with the trends that are happening in the workplace and to continue to be attractive for our people. Um, and, and, and how can we do that? So I see both of these happening. Um, in a way, um, the, the challenging, both of them are challenging, by the way, um, in a sense that when you're seeing a new group of executives walking in and they want to really change how things are done in the business, um, the the challenge about who they are and how they're going to extrapolate exponentially um, that personality to achieve that change is really big because a lot of times we have, I call it the executive principle, right? You get into the chair and suddenly you feel you need to behave differently or you need to do differently. Um, and that discussion is a discussion we really need to have before we can start working on anything else. Who are you? What do you stand for? What is the value that you believe that you can bring um, to, to, to the people that you work with? Um, and what's the price you're willing to pay for that authenticity and that courage? If you're not willing to address these four questions um, individually, but also as a collective group together, authentically, then starting this change um, probably will not work. It's quite um it's quite uplifting and hopeful to hear that because I think a lot of what we see in the media is is generally about corporate culture, which seems to be quite exploitative. Um, the impression of quite in inverted commas psychopathic leaders and uh, with you know just out for themselves and a selfishness. And I wonder to what what role do you think the media plays in creating this idea that this is how you have to be? the boss in a you know the CEO in a company like this 
Yeah, and Naomi, it's a, it's a challenging question. I have to be honest, it's a challenging question because we we are we have all been brought up into a system that has told us that um, 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 that scarcity is what drives uh, value, that scarcity is what drives pricing, and that in order for you to win, you need to be able to get a bigger piece of that what is scarce, right? So it's a win-lose situation. All of us have been taught this paradigm in us in our head, Milton, Fried Milton Friedman's paradigm around um, you know, you're only here um, um, as a principal to make sure that the shareholder gets maximum value out of the company. You're, you're only here as an agent for that shareholder. And we only look at the financial numbers. And in order for you to achieve that, you need to compartmentalize, to make the business efficient, drive it in a certain way. And as you can sense from my wording, it's a lot of push. I determine, I tell you what to do. I know best. Um, and which was great when Ford was setting up um, his automobile company and it was great. But nowadays you see that the level of information that people have access to is, is much more wider than in the past. Um, we have a much higher educated workforce. We have a workforce that has options. And we also know that the old system um, doesn't totally work for us anymore. I mean, the world is broken because we are broken, right? That scarcity mentality and driving for the, the winner takes it all and, and we only look at the financials is destroying the planet and it is destroying, eventually it's going to destroy us. So what you're seeing is now the other side emerging, that we are all part of a value chain. That, that value chain needs to be healthy and health doesn't only come through financials. It comes through other, other items. And the question is for your business, what are these other items? And a lot of times I get a question, yeah, but Edson, we need to make money. And I'm saying, well, I'm a strong believer that you can have a healthy value chain, a healthy planet, healthy leadership, and still make money. That can all happen. I think there is a bit of laziness here, and maybe that's what the media is doing because they also only have a certain amount of minutes to put a point forward. There is a certain laziness here to say, oh, we need to treat everyone equally. Just look at the financials. Um, and actually a leader need to drive things top down and get it done because that's what we pay them for, right? Um, and that dominant narrative, when we start working with our clients, that dominant narrative is the first narrative we start to unpeel. Why is this narrative so important? Um, do you really believe you cannot do it differently? Um, and what are the, um, the gremlins or the determinants that are stopping you from believing that you can do this differently? So to answer your question, yes, we have all been brought up with this paradigm of singular Western-driven capitalistic leadership that is only focused on you need to just make the money and the rest will take care of itself. And we know that's not the case. It's not happening. The planet is dying, um, and it is because of this way of thinking that it is dying. Thank you. That, that's uh, really very uh, interesting. So earlier on, you mentioned how you focus really on the leadership when you engage with an organization. So do you really think that kind of top-down approach is the most effective? Mm. <laughs> uh, uh. David, um, th there is a blind spot there from my side, right? So it's it's well spotted. Um, throughout my career, being a, a someone that was brought up in the Caribbean, worked and lived in Europe, worked and lived in the United States, I have encountered leadership that sometimes I didn't totally understand. On... And unfortunately, or factually, these were all white males, uh, white male executives educated in the top uh, universities that we all know of, with a certain way of looking at the world and a certain way of, of believing that they need to be leaders. Um, and very early on, I realized that that block, if, if, if something doesn't happen with them, this system is never going to change. Now, 
we also see movements like Black Lives Matters, and we see now um, very rich um, um, hires, um, um, people that inherited a lot of money from their parents saying, I don't need that money. And there is even a group now coming together saying, this money was made on the backs of other people. I want to give it away. I don't need it. So you're also seeing the other side, which is outside of corporations saying something needs to change. But I think in corporations themselves, the market rigor and this doctrine of how leadership should be is so invasive and nearly permanent that if we don't tackle it head on, it's not going to happen. Now, am I going to be effective alone? No. Am I going to be effective with much more of us doing this? Yes. Um, so on scalability, David, answering your question, probably the dent I'm going to cause is going to be minimum. Um, but if I, if more of us start doing this type of work, that dent is going to be bigger and bigger. And, and I'm seeing it with leaders there are leaders that are, that are already starting to shift, saying financials only is not going to help us. And there are several brands out there that we can mention that are really, really doing the best to, to look at it differently. I think, um, David, it reminds me of, of trying to change a culture in a prison, for instance, or also in a, a very traditional psychiatric hospital. And I think we found that if the senior staff role models um, particular principles that was really useful but actually we found training the people who were perhaps at the bottom of the hierarchy with knowledge and giving them com concepts that actually if they were talking about things in a very knowledgeable way it forced the people in the middle to have to get abreast of it because they didn't want to be shown up by healthcare workers yeah. um, or prison officers, for instance. So the 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 more senior staff would then make efforts to to make sure they knew what we were talking about, um, so as not to get shown up. Yeah, absolutely. So so when I start the process, Naomi, is I started with the executive team to find out how ready they are for the change. Because step two, step two of our process is we start engaging with the organization. And what I've seen happen a lot of times is we engage with the organization, you educate people, and then they go and talk with leadership and leadership says, oh, I don't know about that. We're gonna, we, yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Um, we have given you the podium and we're gonna continue the same way. And in order to avoid that, that my team and I engage in a process that's gonna be counterproductive, we always start with the, with the leadership team to, to find out how much change they're ready to, to take on. I cannot mention names, but there was one company that we walked away from um, because in the first meeting, we were doing a pitch. I think it was like in minute 20 or 25 because I was looking at my watch and this CEO said, yeah, yeah, but we don't need this. It's our people that need it. And I started drilling down on that question because that was that is immediately a red flag for me. The moment the executive team puts everything that needs to change outside of itself, that means they don't want to change. That's literally what it means. I'm curious, David, if that's what you were getting at, that sense of sometimes in some of the organizations we've worked in, perhaps the, the most senior people talk a line that in that doesn't necessarily feel that it's, it's being matched by action. I don't. I don't know. I'm curious about. You sounded quite cynical about Edson's idea of of needing to target the senior, the most senior staff first. Well, as as you know, Naomi and I both worked in organisations with toxic and consequently very wasteful cultures. Um, so so. Uh, I don't know whether that makes me cynical or not, probably a bit. But anyway, do you think you could say some of the challenges that businesses face when they want to change their culture, Edson? Um, sorry, repeat it again, David, if if I? Share, share some of your experiences about the challenges that companies have faced when they want to change their, their cultures. Yeah, so, so we... we... There is one, one first challenge we, we face is a lot of times people 
organizations don't know the leadership culture that they have, that they have. And I, I'm still trying to find a metaphor to describe this the right way. It's like, it's like you, it's, I think Plato uh, had wrote something about this, right? The first time um, a, um, a, an actor walked out of a cave and saw sunlight. And this person came back and told the rest that he saw sunlight and they killed him because they thought it was crazy, right? Because um, and they were like, sunlight, are you, are you crazy? There is no such thing as sunlight. But it's the same thing. The people are in these organizations, they are enacting a certain type of leadership culture and they don't even know what that leadership culture is. Um, and that's the first thing we, we do with them. Which leadership culture do you think you have? And we put that against which leadership culture do you think that your employees believe that you have? That's, that brings up a big, a big discussion. Um, then um, um, the next question we, we a lot of times talk with them about is what's the maturity level of your organization? Are you a startup, scale up? Are you in professionalization phase? Are you reinventing yourself? That's from the organizational perspective to really find out where are they? Where do they feel that they need to be or are not? And based on these two on these two parameters, we then start defining, okay, as a leadership team, how do you need to behave together? Now, that behavioral element is challenging because of what I just mentioned about Milton Friedman and the new, the new way of looking at business, right? If you have always been taught that leadership is about controlling, it's about, um, it's about conservatism, it's about um, analytical skills, and it's, it's not about being authentic, having courage and, and, and purpose, then behaving differently is really hard. So we call it the N-bar loop, the narrative behavior action results loop. That loop needs to be tackled. Um, and that's the most challenging part of the process because once we have challenged that loop, then you can start conversations with the employees. And we call them, we call these conversations courageous conversations, right? So what we say to the leaders is, first of all, we want you to go out there and be vulnerable, right? Tell people what, what process you have gone through on, um, uh, um, how your narrative has been influenced and how insecure you feel with this new way of looking at a business. And based on that departing point, start an open plan conversation with, um, with, with employees that we record that we do some uh, neurolingual processing, uh, neurolingual processing on, and we pick up some of the ideas and 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 narratives that come out, also to help the business start redefining what are the three four criteria we need to use when taking decisions, when putting policies in place, when talking to our employees, because there is where the rubber hits the ground. The moment decisions need to be made processes of putting pays, policies are designed. We need to have these four or five variables that the senior leadership is continuously asking themselves, hey, are we truly being authentic here? Are we truly being fair here? Are we truly being inclusive here? And they need to ask themselves at this at every decision point and at every meeting. That this is the most difficult part of the process because there is where some teams um, pick it up, run with it. And some teams, when it gets really hard, fall back into old behaviors and patterns. Um, yeah. Did I answer your question, David? I hope I, hope I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, partly. I mean, I think you raise a lot of questions as well. I do really like that phrase that you used at the beginning there, that often leaders don't know the culture that they have. And it, 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 it sounds if what you're saying is if, if you can get a leader or a group of leaders to understand that, then you're already at kind of second uh, second base. Yeah. And a lot of times it's not one, right? It's not one culture. I mean, we have seven of them defined. Um, and sometimes they, they choose three of them. And then you get a discussion. Why do you think we have that culture versus that culture, right? Um, and it has to do with market maturity, which type of business you're in, which geography you're in. But it, but it does bring up the discussion around, okay, if I believe that this is the leadership culture I have and, and you believe we have a different one, that's the reason why you and me continuously don't really see eye to eye or don't really understand each other. Um, and let's have a, a, a deeper discussion around that. Where does it come from? 
so yeah, it's a it's a it's an eye opener. Also, challenging sessions to challenging sessions to moderate. It's interesting to hear you talking. Edson. For listeners, Edson's based in Amsterdam, but I don't know, Edson, if you're aware of how frequently the Metropolitan Police have been in the news within Britain over the last sort of 12 to 24 months. And I think it was, you know, quite interesting to hear when Cressida Dick was there to hear her talk about rooting out the, the bad pennies, but, you know, the bad apples, which makes it sound like a, a handful of people and very much not something that's happening at the top. And then there was very recently um, somebody else who's very senior in the police talking about the number of officers that have been charged with, you know, that have, have been uh, investigated for serious misconduct and saying you'd like to get rid of a lot of these people but there's a lot of externalization of of the problem rather than recognizing that the culture is probably contributing and you, you also see this in the prison service where uh, an officer might get involved in um well they let you know labeling get corruption and the the officer getting too involved with prisoners without thinking about well what what is the role that the culture plays in all of this so it's interesting to hear about you talk about these challenges from a different a different perspective yeah and i and i know me there is always this thing i, I called bene benevolent hierarchy benevolent hierarchy is for me really yeah it's 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 not healthy what benevolent hierarchy does is um i'm your leader if you're loyal to me i'll be good to you and if you stack that up all the way to the top, you get cultures in which I will never challenge you if you're my leader, Naomi, because I need to be loyal to you, right? So whatever happens, I will not challenge you. And that not challenging leads to me not being authentic with you all the time. Therefore, I will not tell you everything all the time because I need to keep you in my good books. Now we multiply that by a hundred or a hundred thousand. Um, in the prison system in the in the UK, prison system in the Netherlands, police department in the Netherlands, by the way, also in the news for the past 12 months, lots of uh, racial issues, lots of leadership issues. Um, and I think it's endemic to these type of organizations where we have said that top-down approaches, hierarchical dominance is much more important than um, really uh, unleashing um, what makes people that work in this organization tick and how can we use that knowledge to better um, select our leaders, better put processes in place and better and create better institutions for the services that we're delivering. And, and leaders that are able to have that discussion courageously are the ones that are gonna win. And, and I, even in the prison system, even in the military, even in the police system, I think I believe we can do this. And I always, and it's a sad thing to say, and I'm not very militaristic, so I, but I do read a lot about what's happening in the Ukraine. I believe one of the reasons the Ukrainian military is being so successful is because the narrative and the belief they have um, is what's driving them. And, and also I think the central guidance is minimum because when they are in the field, they need to know what they're doing and why they're doing it whilst you're seeing the Russian military top-down top down management, and I guess they're failing miserably. So what does that say, right? Talk with your people, empower them, courageously, authentically unleash what it is that they have to say and make that work, make it work. That's your, that's your role as a leader, make it work. It always um, shocked me within the prison service, actually, to see how often uh, people people glossed over things and just did things because that's what they'd been told to do rather than there being any kind of any sense of healthy debate about uh, what was the the right thing and people saying well I can't do this because um, because this is what my boss has said which doesn't doesn't inspire confidence in an yeah. organization and I, I think when you look at the places like the police and the prison service it seems like everybody else can see that the cultures are toxic without the people at the top owning that and being able to, um, people are, are fearful, aren't they, of, like you say, exposing their vulnerability. Yeah. 
And the top, the top is is um, there is a price the top is winning by keeping it this way, right? I mean, they're not keeping it this way because because um, they are ignorant. They're keeping it this way because consciously or subconsciously, there is something they're winning by keeping it this way. And the question is, what is that? Sorry, David. sometimes they may be wrong. I was reading uh, recently about the um, the trust aberration that we had over here. Um, and this insider was saying, anyone who disagreed was executed on the spot. I thought, wow, that's pretty strong. Yeah, you Sounds will. quite an apt turn of phrase though, doesn't it? Mm. We've, we've seen that brutality in organizations. There we go. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, I don't believe in that type of uh, leadership. I, I think, there is a blind spot here, David and Naomi, that I, I, I always, and in my PhD, I'm trying to get some sense out of it. A lot of the leadership paradigms and philosophies that we're using now are very Western driven. Unfortunately, um, any written documentation we have of leadership in Asia, Latin America or Africa is, is, is it's not enough. Um, and I think uh, these ancient cultures had a lot to tell us about leadership. But unfortunately, a lot of it has been de destroyed or is not there that we can learn from. There are narratives, there are stories we can listen to. But unfortunately, there isn't one documented. So that's that's an area where I'm increasingly interested in uncovering more knowledge and reading about to see if we can put a different proposition on the table. Can you, can you tell us about some of these alternative economic models that don't rely on a, a small number of people being wealthy at the expense of the masses? Yeah, so um, there, there is. So one of the one of the models is a um, is the broader stakeholder model, which says um, that when you are the dominant actor in a value chain, you need to be aware of your power in that value chain. With that power doesn't only come the responsibility to make money, but also comes the responsibility to make the value chain viable for the future and make everyone that is operating in that value chain have um, a, a, good, a, a good life because they're operating in that value chain. So they're not only looking at financials, but they're looking at um, environmental impact. They're looking at impact towards the rest of the actors in the value chain and they're looking at the impact of um, their products and services on society. So these are four pillars. Um, and these four pillars, they are trying as much as they can to quantify them and put it also in their annual reports. And there is a fifth one. Um, the fifth one is around their um, employees' um, health, both mentally as well as um, 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 physically. Um, um, and this is one of the alternative models. There is another model that says, we do not need to work in these hierarchical organizations. We can build um, network organizations. So I pull you in when I need you. We do this thing together. We make it work. And then we all go our own way. They call it kaleidoscope career, um, the network society. Um, um, so... The, the determinant here is not, I need to put you in an organization for you to work for me. The determinant is here. We have a, a team, a subject that we need to deal with, bring the right people together, deal with it for two years, three years, four years, five years. When it's done, we all move on. Um, and therefore we all get, and you let people decide for themselves which domain I'm going to step into and what is the financial trade-off I want to, engage in when doing that and therefore my wealth is not determined by access it's not determined by um do i am i um, um totally loyal to the person on top of me to progress no it's determined by my own conscious choice around what do i want to do with my life where do i want to spend my energy and what's the price trade-off i want to i want to i want to um, engage in for that that's a second model that uh, people are looking at. And there's also um, the last model where, um, and, and it has been, it's a, it's a Brazilian, um, I forgot his name at the moment, that, that institutionalized it, where employees themselves determine 
the, the salary of um, their co-employees all the way to the top, but also that employees also determine how much value they want to give to the shareholder, depending on where they stand with the organization. Uh, it's an experimental phase, but it's also a, a way. And not to forget, capitalism is not bad. We have overused capitalism. That's what's going on. We have, we have driven it to the extreme where it has become a tool to get rich at the expense of others. I do believe that a certain form of capitalism still is very useful, but we need to make sure that the excesses are managed. And at the moment, we're not doing that. Thank you. Your, your approach to organization seems to share quite a few similarities with working psychologically with individuals. Um, with individuals, we often want to understand the history in order to have some context for how problems have emerged. Is, there, is this necessary for, if, for an organization as well if it wants to change? Um, <clears throat> I, I believe so. I, I believe so. And I believe so because I'm going to digress a little bit here. Um, my leadership consciousness started evolving when I started reading about my past. Um, I started reading about my, my, my um, forefathers, um, where they were um, slaves, on which plantations on the island, which family on the island owned, owned my, my great, great, great grandparents. We know that now. Um, and therefore, <clears throat> my leadership consciousness started evolving around, wow, if my ancestors went through all of this, then um, of course I need to persevere and continue because whatever they went through is, 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 is not to be compared with what I'm going through. So there is no, no complaining happening here, Edson, get on with it, right? Um, um, so that's how my leadership consciousness evolved. I believe that also organizations have a consciousness because they do have a responsibility in society. Uh, a lot of organizations um, during moments of crisis were on the, on the wrong side, on the wrong side of history. And acknowledging that, knowing that instead of just pushing it away is necessary for you also to be able to take accountability and responsibility for the role you, ha you have in the, in, in, in the communities right now. Um, and not, not a lot of companies are, are doing that. Um, and you're seeing it happening now. Um, the, I, don't, I think several UK organizations went back to acknowledge their participation in slavery. It's also happening in the Netherlands. And you're suddenly starting to, to people, leaders are starting to think what are the blind spots that we have now that in a hundred years people are also going to look at us and say, what were they doing in 2021? Because that's going to happen. And, and, and I think climate is one of those. I think the excesses of capitalism is one of those. And the fact that we have 5% of the world living in absolute wealth and 95% in abhorrent poverty. Um, these questions are going to be asked in a given moment. So yes, I do believe we need to look at the past in order to move to the future. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So I think when organisations like the prison service and psychiatric hospitals uh, often seem to put a lot of energy into trying to transform their cultures, but I'm, I'm not sure they're always aware of the historical scars that are there which you know I guess sometimes it's uncomfortable to look at some of those past you know you're talking about organizations that are involved in in slavery for instance it's it's quite painful to accept you know an organization's role in something that's so so wrong but without being prepared to do that I guess it's hard to understand where the origins of some of the culture that we've inherited at times is. Absolutely absolutely and um we shouldn't forget um, the first stock market um, um, was created in Amsterdam and it was created because um, we needed bonds were sold to build ships in order to go to Africa um, and to transport 
among other things, slaves, right? That's how the Dutch stock market started. Wall Street started for um, uh, the, the trading of the slave ownership papers, right? So when you have ownership of slaves and you, you needed cash, Wall Street was one of the places you went to to start selling that, right? So if you look at capitalism and you look at the winner-takes-it-all mentality, here is where it comes from. Um, disproportionately abusing or, or enriching yourself based on a power dynamic that is not fair. Now, my challenge is make the power dynamic fair and use your influence because I think you can do both. And that is where the, there is where the, the equity is going to come from. Um, um, and, and, and we can start building a better, a better place. So for prison system and for, for hospitals, I think this is absolutely imperative because otherwise, otherwise you're not going to change it. And you've already kind of, you've already touched on this, but I wondered if you could distill really what, what are some of the features of a healthy organizational culture? What is it that the organization should be aspiring to? Yeah, uh, I, I think a healthy organizational culture is an organizational culture of debate. Um, and I say conscious debate because you cannot always be debating. There are some moments in organizations you need to execute. You need to ensure safety. You need to do stuff. But healthy debate is continuously encouraged there where change needs to happen. The second thing is um, there are um, processes in place that can give people safety. That means when someone talks, when a leader does something that he shouldn't have done or if a co-colleague does something that he shouldn't have done, there is a process in place that is determined to make sure that that behavior doesn't happen anymore. And there is a process in place that doesn't take eight months to be completed, but is swift, is immediate, um, and deals with it. Because and, and a third part of a healthy organization is the decision-making variables of the senior team when dealing with dilemmas and challenging is known for everyone. So the narrative when a leader leadership has, has taken a decision is clear and is known for everyone. You might disagree with it, but we all consciously know where it's coming from and, and we can have peace with that. I mean, these are three things that I think make, makes an organization extremely healthy. It's really helpful. Thank you. <clears throat> a slightly change of tack, Edson, but do, do board members understand the nature of institutional racism, homophobia, sexism, as opposed to that which is exhibited at an individual level? Because quite often you'll hear, hear people talking about it in a way that implies um, that there's a confusion of the two. Uh, so now we can talk for days about this, right? <laughs> I uh, so um, the the answer is no, no, because there is this thing called the paradox of embedded agency. That means if I am part of a system that gives me the advantages that I've always uh, made use of. It's built into my subconscious and it's hard for me to say, hey, wait a minute, I am successful because of this and, and not despite of it, right? Um, and it's hard. It's hard to make that distinction. That's why I think history is important. So when I sit with leaders, and it's really funny you're asking this because this week I had a, a session about this on equity and equality. I'll get to that one soon. But there is one with leaders around. Yeah, but Edson, we have been trying to get more women into the executive team and it's not working. And uh, But we're doing everything to make sure that everyone is equal and bring them in. Um, and then I said, but, but what are the dominant norms based on which you're doing the selection criteria? What are the dominant norms based on which you're asking your questions? Um, because you're all a male in this room. And I can imagine that if you are asking questions only from your dominant perspective, a lot of our female candidates are going to be totally put off by it. S Silence, right? 
Um, and if I add to that, remember the system of companies and institutions was built by men inherently. Remember, women just got the right to work. What was it, 75 years ago? Uh, I think in the Netherlands it was 75 years ago. I don't know when it was in the UK. Um, so we shouldn't forget that all these institutions were built from a male perspective and a white male perspective and DNA. They weren't built from a different perspective. So that's why I think history is important for us to understand what the dominant norms are now. The other one around equality and equity, right? There was another discussion we were having. But Edson, I don't want to discriminate. I want to treat everyone equally. This is also very, it's a very, very interesting statement. I said, okay, so if you're not discriminating and you're not, and you, and you're not um, excluding other people, why is it that your senior team is um, fully Western European white and yet your organization has 400,000 employees and is based all over the world? What's happening that people are not systemically growing to these ranks? Question mark. Um, the other question was um, around equity and the equality. Yeah, but in our business, we need to treat everyone equally. I said, but do you understand that when you treat everyone equally, you are excluding people? And I said, it's, I'm just going to make it very rudimentary, very basic. If I am blind and you don't know that I am blind and you want to treat everyone equally and you give me the same test to fill, I will fail that test because I'm blind. You just didn't know I'm blind. So from an equity perspective, you need to give me different tools to get me to the same level to be able to finish that exam. And this is the difference between treating everyone equally versus building an equity in your policies, your procedures. The next question is, yeah, but then we will have to um, uh, do this for all our 300,000 employees. I said, well, actually, no. Have you asked your employees what they feel is important and what they feel is less important? And nowadays you can do that very easily and they will tell you. And those are your focus points, nothing else. Um, so here is where I think a lot of leadership groups still are grappling with institutionalized racism, with a system that they feel is equal, but actually is a pretty, is a system that excludes more than that it provides access. And you're emphasizing the need to have conversations with different people, aren't you, within that, that actually if, if you're part of the dominant um, ma management culture that you're not likely to have been having the kinds of conversations that expose you to some of the challenges that other people, other people might face. We, we sometimes see massive investment in transformational change with very little evidence that it's made a difference. So for instance, there was a report criticizing the NHS for lacking ethnic diversity at board level, but the focus on diversity following the death of George Floyd suggested nothing had really changed. We see the same in the police and the prison service. Where are these kinds of organizations going wrong and what action could they take? Mm, um, yeah, I. Uh, there, there is a couple of things that I, as, a, as an HR executive, always tackled um, when I came in. It got me into a lot of trouble also, by the way. It got me into a lot of trouble with the, with the dominant norm, with the dominant group. Sometimes even led to, to um, um, di dismissal or mutually agreed, let me walk out of here because after three years, there is really a different view of what leadership is. First of all, there is this thing about, at this moment in time, we're hiring a lot of diverse talents to get them in. Um, where are we doing that? We're doing that in the lower ranks or the middle ranks. Um, when we are hiring on the executive ranks, you see that a lot of uh, these hires need to have a referral or a reference of someone that has been in that system already before. Now, the chances that that reference is going to be positive is, is, is minimum, or the chances that that reference being there is minimum. That's one. The second thing is, should you find that odd 
brown black person that that does go through all these steps and is successful a lot of times it's only one out of the 10 so the chances of that person being successful is also going to be complicated the third part is like i said if you're not willing to really have a discussion about the dominant norms in your group and how these dominant norms are excluding and if you're not ready to address the paradigm of embedded agency, then, it, then it's, it's not gonna happen. We, we're gonna put more diverse, chief diversity officers in place, more events, more awareness sessions. We're gonna put a diverse and inclusive recruitment team together and they're gonna bring them in, but it's not gonna happen because the dominant norm and the paradigm of embedded agency are blockages that stop a systemic change from happening. And the only way to achieve that systemic change is by tackling these two things. That's why, David, I start with the leaders. Because if, if, if there's something doesn't happen, I, do, I don't believe that anything else is going to happen lower down. Excellent. Thanks very much indeed. So how do we help a society create and choose ethical leaders? Mm. Um, how do we help societies? Ethical leaders, right? Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a big one, David. I need to think about that for a moment. Um, <laughs> I need to think about it because... Um, you know, there is something there into the definition of what ethics are, right? And the, the reason why I'm, I, am, I am challenged by a question, and I really need to think hard about it, is ethics are also defined by dominant norms, right? They're also defined by dominant norms. So... For me, ethical leaders are leaders that are aware of the how the system has been constructed and the blind spots that this construct has. So an ethical leader knows that the prison system is a it's I dare to say it's a it's a power system because you have inmates that have broken the law. You have to behaviorally make sure that they behave the right way. And most of the time, the most basic, easiest tool to grab is power, right? Confinement. Um, and there are blind spots to that way of working. And that blind spot is, if we only show dominance, I'm going to take away your basic rights. You will have nothing to say about that you are supporting a narrative behavior actions and results loop that will entice more criminal behavior when this person leaves the prison. Because the only thing they have learned is, you know, just like they took away my freedom, I can take away yours. I can take away your life. I can, because they do it, they did it with me too. So an ethical leader knows the blind spots of the systems that they work in. And an ethical leader also tries to find the right balance between what is the correct thing to do and also how do we instigate change that is positive. And the ethics of that is sitting with the norms that are important and yet challenging them when you feel that they are not working and having the courage I guess having the courage to challenge them when you feel they're not working I think these three elements are the elements for for an ethical leader for me from an organizational perspective I'm not talking from a philosophical or societal perspective if you purely look at an organization this is what for me an ethical leader would do Thank you. I, th I think you're brilliant at thinking on your feet, Edson, because it really was, as I uh, was listening to you, I, I realized it's really very complex uh, 
question. And uh, I think what you've done is you've honed down to the elemental basics of the question. So thanks very much for that. So I mean, thinking about you and your your position, which which must have been very challenging at times, I mean, the kind of personal journey you've described, and it must have been very personally challenging. How do you ensure that you, you stay emotionally healthy and happy? And what advice would you give to the rest of us? Yeah, it's, um, and, and you're asking me this question in a moment of the year that I am not being very healthy to myself. I am too busy. And I feel that in my head, there is so much going on. The first thing I would say, find like-minded people that are not going to just say what you want to hear, but that you can have debates about the challenging that you're facing um, in a way that is respectful to you, right? And, and these are difficult to find. The other thing that I try to do to keep emotionally healthy is I try as hard as I can to really take the weekends off, not working on Saturday and Sunday. Unfortunately, I'm failing miserably these past months, but that's 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 what I, I try really to do because I when I do that, the energy on Monday morning is 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 really there. And the the other thing is. Yeah, I'm gonna sound I'm gonna sound like Oprah now, but but this is what I do. Uh, in the morning when I wake up, between between opening your eyes and being fully conscious, sometimes things pop up in my head. Oh, I need to do this. I need to do that. I always I have a pen uh, besides my bed. I always write them down, and I always act on them one way or the other. And that has been for me extremely good um also when i didn't want to act on them because sometimes you, there are things you don't want to act on and then you wake up you're like yeah but you do need to do it um and and that has kept me healthy because it's a way of continuing to drive my own car and um because one of my coaches and i have a coach by the way my coach said to me Edson. And this is about knowing yourself. I get stressed when I'm not driving my car. When I'm not consciously driving my car. Because sometimes you can give the car away. And the car, by the way, is, is your life, right? Sometimes it's nice to say to someone, for this piece, you're in charge, right? But, but, most, but you need to make that decision consciously. And when I do it unconsciously, stress comes up. I'm doing things that I'm not intentionally thinking of or not intentionally wanting to do. And I know that I need to stop and rethink what I'm doing. Because when I'm feeling stressful, it's because I'm doing something that I don't want to be doing. But that's how it works for me. I don't know if it works for other people that way, but that's how it works for me. Well, it's really much. I thought that was a really interesting answer, Edson. And I think there's something very different for people to think about in there yeah yeah when you had me going there though when you mentioned going from a car to a coach i was wondering how you drove that around absolutely <laughs> no no my uh um, my my the car is 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 your life um and and the coach is a, the the traffic person the traffic cop that stops you once in a while to tell you mm -mm, i don't think this is the right direction you you might want to stop and rethink this um yeah yeah so uh yeah that's how that's how it works for me but hey um i'm not gonna tell you how old i am um uh, it, it took me a couple of decades to get there to started realizing how my internal mechanics work great really, metaphor. Been, thank you it's been a real pleasure meeting and talking with you Edson. thank you david Naomi. thank you thank you for these questions there are hmm they also made me think I probably have to chew on them a little bit more. <laughs>